Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled King Solomon, Politics, and Power, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 20th, 2006. In April of 2004, Pastor and scholar Greg Boyd preached a controversial series of six sermons entitled The Cross and the Sword at his 5,000-member Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. As he later explained in his new book that grew out of these sermons entitled The Myth of a Christian Nation, in those months preceding the elections, Boyd wanted to warn his congregation about what he called nationalistic and political ideology of identifying the Christian gospel with any political point of view, of cherished but badly mistaken convictions like the belief that America is a Christian nation, or that believers should quote-unquote take back their nation for God. No, Boyd preached, the path through politics is not the road to God. Many parishioners thanked Boyd for his wisdom and for his boldness but others weren't so enamored. In fact, about a thousand people left the congregation. It would have been far easier for Boyd to remain silent, of course. The relationship between religion and politics is complex, controversial, divisive, ambiguous, and certainly full of compromises. Thus the caution never to mix politics and religion. But that's precisely what the Old Testament reading about King Solomon this week does. Boyd did not preach that believers should avoid politics or that Christian convictions have no political implications. And as this week's Old Testament reading about Solomon demonstrates, there is a prophetic critique of political power that avoids the extremes of both the safety of silence and ideological fervor. A simple reading of the story of Solomon in particular, 1 Kings 1-11, and of the larger context in general, the six books of 1-2nd Samuel, 1-2nd Kings, and 1-2nd Chronicles, reveals what a friend of mine once called a brilliant glimpse of the obvious that at least this portion of the Bible is purely and profoundly political. This week's story relates the transition of power from David to Solomon. Further on, we read about Israel's role in the geopolitics of Assyria, Edom, Egypt, Moab, and Tyre. We read about wars, alliances made by marriage, famines, conspiracies, assassinations, economic trade agreements, and foreign policy negotiations. We read about Solomon's massive building projects, the temple at Jerusalem and his royal palace, both of which were built by slave labor conscripted from resident aliens, and of his incomparable wealth. Some of this material makes for dreadfully boring reading, because its sources clearly include government archives, bureaucratic invoices, and court records. In my Bible, 
this purely political narrative runs for 250 pages and covers 400 years from Israel's first King David until its exile by Babylon in the year 586 BC. So, while some people might counsel the safety of silence when it comes to politics, you could not make that case from the Bible. God's revelation of himself shows that he cares deeply about and somehow interacts with human politics, government, and statecraft. In the New Testament, too, we encounter Jesus' announcement of an alternate reign or kingdom that is redolent with inherently political implications. He renounced violence and blessed peacemakers. He favored poor people and warned the rich. He embraced ethnic outsiders and infuriated smug insiders. He partied with moral failures and flaunted religious conventions. So I find it frustrating to go to church and hear little or nothing from the pulpit about how I, as a Christian, might parse political developments, like 3,000 Iraqi citizens slaughtered every month, about North Korea that has tested missiles, that Hezbollah would destroy Israel if it could, or that most people in Africa live in dreadful poverty. The story of Solomon reminds us of what the French sociologist Jacques Ellul said in his book, The Politics of God and the Politics of Man. The Bible, wrote Ellul, shows us that the church is not just a spiritual matter, that politics is not just simply a human action of no concern to us. It may be that politics is the kingdom of the devil, but this certainly concerns us as Christians. Other Christians make the opposite mistake. Instead of avoidance and silence, they reduce the meaning of faith to little more than politics. In general, liberal Christians identify with Democrats and conservative believers with Republicans. A closer inspection of the Solomon story shows why both alliances are equally mistaken. We do read about Solomon's wisdom in his earnest prayer when he dedicated the temple but his story ends with personal corruption to pagan gods and goddesses and national catastrophe when his son Rehoboam provoked a civil war that ripped the country apart and that only ended with defeat by the global powers of Assyria in 722 BC and Babylon in 586 BC. In Solomon's case, Religious sincerity was no guarantee of personal or political wisdom. In the end, the biblical revelation about Solomon is tragic regarding political power. The larger Bible context is even more so. The political panorama of First and Second Kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen. That would be Queen Athaliah, in 2 Kings 11. So we have 40 kings and one queen in the 400 years from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon. Only two of those kings received unqualified approval by the narrator. 
Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.3 and Josiah in 2 Kings 22 verse 2. Instead, with monotonous regularity, over 30 times the writer renders the ominous judgment that a king, quote-unquote, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Instead of the glorification of power or the glorification of nationalistic celebration, his history of politics is unremittingly negative, in keeping, we might observe, with Samuel's dire warning in 1 Samuel 8. His narrative conveys a radical relativization, a subversion, and even a judgment of Israel's politics. A remarkable feat when you consider that these are Israel's sacred writings, and that such negative conclusions about royal power must have put the author at some risk. Jesus insisted that the kingdom he inaugurated is not of this world. John 18.36. Boyd notes that almost all human kingdoms and powers go to any lengths to exercise what he calls power over others, political power, economic, military, cultural, and so on. Whereas the reign of God that Jesus taught and modeled flourishes counterintuitively and paradoxically by what Boyd calls power under others a radically countercultural mandate for an alternative ordering of human affairs. Jesus did not allow himself to be co-opted by any political ideology or party of the day, and he did not engage in any political action in the ordinary sense of that word. From his birth, when King Herod tried to murder him, until his death at the hands of Pilate, Jesus threatened the political powers of his day, not because he wanted to control what they controlled, but because, as Gary Wills says in his book, What Jesus Meant, quote, Jesus undercut its pretensions and claims to supremacy, end quote. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. Thus concludes Gary Wills, Jesus did not acquiesce in silence before political power, but confronted it so that, quote, the program of Jesus' reign can be seen as a systematic anti-politics. And now for further reflection. What has been your experience of the separation or the mixture of politics and religion? How do the politics of both the left and the right try to co-op Christian faith? In what sense did Jesus advocate what Gary Wills calls a systematic anti-politics? Fourth, what do you make of Israel's sacred narrative that speaks so negatively about 39 out of 41 of its leaders? And then finally, See the new book by Greg Boyd entitled The Myth of a Christian Nation, How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church, from the year 2006. For books this week, we have a guest book review by Julie Schaffner, 
who was visiting associate professor of international economics in the Fletcher School at Tufts University. She reviews William Easterly's new book, The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good. New York, The Penguin Press, 2006, 448 pages. The explanation promised in the subtitle of William Easterly's books, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good, is that Western interventions in poor countries, from World Bank development projects to military peacebuilding operations, have been driven by what Easterly calls planners rather than searchers. Planners, in his definition, pursue pursue utopian objectives, design global blueprints, and implement them with little local knowledge and little feedback from the intended beneficiaries. Searchers, on the other hand, seek first to understand the specific needs of intended beneficiaries and then, drawing upon detailed local knowledge as well as trial and error, identify practical ways of meeting those needs. Whereas planners dominate, accountability for achieving real benefits is lacking. Over the course of 11 chapters, Easterly describes the ills wrought by the planner mentality in the wide-ranging fields of official foreign aid, Western efforts to build free markets and democracy in poor countries, conditional lending by the International Monetary Fund, early Western responses to the AIDS crisis, colonialism, decolonization, and contemporary military occupations. He writes with wit, personal connection, and a thought-provoking combination of statistical analysis and anecdotes. His tone conveys his anger over lives devastated, devastated by ineptitude and willful ignorance on both the left and the right. Easterly digs most deeply and usefully into the causes of planner ineffectiveness when he examines the case closest to his own experience, official foreign aid. In fact, he confesses to having spent many years as a foreign aid planner himself while working as an economist for the World Bank. With many official aid organizations pursuing the same vague goals, Each may claim responsibility for apparent successes while blaming others for failures. And their rich constituencies often seem to accept numbers of reports written, summits organized, and dollars spent as if they were measures of genuine success. Thus aid organizations feel little outside pressure to demonstrate true beneficial impact in the lives of real people. They are also constrained by norms preventing field staff from staying long in any one region, and by rules requiring them to partner with corrupt country governments. Planners thrive in this environment, while searchers, on the other hand, are continually frustrated. By documenting the failure of foreign aid, Easterly claims to convince readers that increasing the effectiveness of aid is at least as important as recent high-profile efforts to increase the volume of aid. 
By identifying planner mentality as an important source of failures, he begins the task of figuring out how aid effectiveness might be improved. And his discussion offers many useful hints in that direction. But he has much more to say about what breeds failure than about what breeds success. The reader ends up wishing that Easterly had sacrificed some of his digressions into failures of political and military interventions in order to pursue further the practical steps that might be taken to combat planner mentality and, in, and promote increased accountability in the administration of official foreign aid. William Easterly, The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Effort to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good, by Julie Schaffner, visiting professor at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. For film this week, I review the film An Inconvenient Truth from the year 2006. First, there was Al Gore's book, book entitled Earth in the Balance, 1992. Then his PowerPoint roadshow about the book, and now a documentary film about Gore's roadshow to push the crisis, and it is a crisis, of global warming to the forefront of American public discourse. Regardless of your opinion about Gore's political history, in this film he combines the consensus of mainstream science with admirable passion to, to explain in lay terms a crucial issue of our day. This film lacks almost any creativity whatsoever in that it simply shows Gore giving his PowerPoint presentation to a live audience. But it's a PowerPoint presentation well worth considering. Gore includes charts, graphs, statistics, personal anecdotes, and before and after pictures of the effects of global warming. In conjunction with the film's release, Gore has published a book version by the same title, An Inconvenient Truth, which, as I write, sits atop the New York Times bestseller list. An Inconvenient Truth would be a fine film to watch with older kids. An Inconvenient Truth featuring Al Gore. Finally this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633, entitled The Collar, a reference to the clerical collar that he wore. I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. What? Shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, Loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me bleed, And not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my ears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it, no flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted? 
Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methoughts I heard one calling, Child, and I replied, My Lord. The Collar by George Herbert Thank you for joining us for journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 20th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.